Seated. If you will turn in your Bibles to the 14th chapter of the Gospel of Luke, beginning in verse 15, as we continue our study through the Word. Now, you'll remember that Jesus is focused on the cross. He is heading towards Jerusalem. The nation has rejected his offer of salvation. The religious leaders have decried that he is not from God. And so Jesus has been busy now taking the message of salvation on an individual basis to let every single person know that you have to decide for yourself, uh, that God wants to reconcile with you, that you're a sinner separated uh, from God's uh, love for eternity apart from your sin, and that Jesus was sent to save us from our sins. And, and so every single person has to come to that individual recognition. You see Jesus now just imploring people, warning them of the consequences of destruction if you do not take God up on his peace offering, but yet letting them know that God's love is sufficient for all and that his desire is to rescue every single person. I think of how tragic it must be from God's perspective to, to create a soul and then to knit them together in their mother's womb and to draw them out and breathe life into them and then to court them their entire life only to have them reject the very God that created them desiring to spend eternity with them, creating them for that purpose, to love and be loved, not just temporarily, but for all eternity. And how sad it must be for all of those people who willingly reject God's love and his invitation into an eternal relationship. Jesus is seeking to reconcile the world to God. And, and now as he is headed towards Jerusalem, he is heading there during the, peace, the Feast of Passover. It will be the final feast. Of all the feasts that Jesus has celebrated in his life, it will be his last feast that he will attend this side of the resurrection. And we see that as he comes to the Passover, he is not just going to attend it, but he himself is the fulfillment of the Passover. He is the Passover lamb. And as he comes, different than every other time, he knows that he himself is going to offer himself up as that lamb that was slain before the foundations to remove the sins and to reconcile man to God. And so... His heart is heavy. It is burdened, burdened with carrying the weight of God's will for his life, but also burdened by the rejection of the nation and by the rejection of individuals. And so we are going to see him in this 14th chapter continue to call everybody into that relationship, that saving, abiding, discipleship relationship with Jesus. You remember last time we left off where Jesus and now had been invited into the home of a Pharisee. 
The third time that we've seen Jesus in the home of a Pharisee here in Luke's gospel. And this time it was a leader of the Pharisees. And, and you remember that, uh, that there was a man that was there and that he was uh, suffering. And, uh, and so they watched uh, now to see what would happen because it was the Sabbath. He had dropsy. And, and you remember that Jesus now, turns to the religious leaders and basically poses the question, do you really believe that it is against God's law to heal this man? Have you really gotten to that place of understanding who God is through the law that you would outlaw an act of compassion and love on the Sabbath? Is that how you understand God? And they would not answer him. They simply said nothing. And Jesus heals uh, this man. I want you to know that Christ was moved with compassion. He saw the state of suffering of this person. And, and now Christ's desire was to minister to him and to bless him and to help him. And, and I'm always touched by Christ's compassion for us, how much he cares for us. He cares about your suffering. He sees your suffering. He already knows all that you've been anxious about just this morning, just this day already, the things that, uh, that are on your mind that are kind of gnawing at the back of your thoughts or that you have been overwhelmed with already this morning. He knows the anxiousness, the uncertainty, and the difficulty that you are going through, and he cares for you. He loves you. He has compassion upon you. And so here we see that, that he ministers to it and meets this man's need. And, and you remember that, that afterwards, Jesus then goes on to uh, speak to them about how it is that they have such a wrong interpretation of the law. He says, which of you does not take care of his ox or his donkey on a Sabbath? And and the point that he was making was that you're treating animals better than those that are made in the image and likeness of God. He goes on from there, you will remember, to give a, a parable. It was the parable of the, uh, of the ambitious guest. And, and you remember that in it, he talked about that when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, don't seek to exalt yourself. The Pharisees were playing a, a religious game in which they were competing with one another to see who would be the most righteous. And they had determined the rules of engagement, the most righteous is the person that could argue scripture the best, the one that could keep more of the law than anybody else. And, and so they sought then to be recognized for their achievements. They sought the best positions in places of honor amongst people. They wanted recognition from men. And that's what they were seeking. And so Jesus says, when you're invited, don't seek to exalt yourself. You see, self-exaltation, that's, that's the building up of yourself and of the kingdom that, that you are building. But when you come into the kingdom of God, there is only one that we are to exalt, and, and that is God who is worthy to be praised and honored. And so stop trying to exalt self. 
Be humble. Take the lowest place. Serve others. Love others. Build the kingdom of God and stop building your own. And so Jesus now trying to minister to the, the Pharisees. He says, and, and when you're throwing a feast, you know, a person that's very generous throws a big feast and, and boy, there's all the food, there's all the desserts, there's all the refreshments, the great cost and effort and labor that goes into throwing a banquet. He says that that's not an act of loving others. He says, what you're doing is, is that you're really doing it in order now that you yourself might receive an invitation to the other banquets that are going on, that you want everybody to ooh and ah over the, the, the invitation that they have received. And what you're really doing is you're not taking and blessing people with the cost of that. It's an investment that you're expecting a return on that investment. He says, that's not God's love. That's just self-promotion veiled in kindness towards uh, others. God's love is the agape love, the love that, uh, that there is no repayment for. It is given as simply an act. And he says that, that if you want to truly love others, then when you throw a feast, invite the poor and the maimed and, and the broken, those that have no ability to give you anything back, either by inviting you to their feast or, uh, or even by praise and recognition. And so that is the heart of God that, that Jesus now is talking about. He says, and when you love others like that, he says, your reward is not going to be here. Your reward is going to be in heaven and, and truly at the resurrection of the just. And when he now mentions the the resurrection of the just. Immediately what, what pops into the mind of, uh, of the Jews would be the messianic banquet. That, that is the great feast that God is going to, uh, to set forth. And, and it was a concept that the Jews looking forward to that day when Messiah would come and there would be this great feast that was thrown. Their traditions taught them that on the menu of this great banquet, the messianic banquet, would be Leviathan. The great sea monster would be the, uh, one of the dishes that were there. I'm not sure how you prepare him. <laughs> if he sauteed a little butter and garlic or, uh, or whether you bake him, you know. But, but he was going to be on the menu and there is this, this great concept of this feast that God is going to throw, the, uh, the messianic banquet. You remember in the 23rd Psalm where it says that you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. And surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord. For how long? forever. And so this, this concept of this great messianic banquet that is going to be thrown, the resurrection of the just. Now, we know that that great banquet that has been referred to throughout the Old Testament, that messianic banquet, is actually the marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelation chapter 19 verse 9 talks about it, that that, that is the wedding feast that God is going to throw 
for Christ and the bride of Christ. And, and we are the bride of Christ. And, and how glorious that is going to be. How glorious it will be when we sit down at the wedding supper of the Lamb. You know, I oftentimes think about, you know, when, when we stand before the gates of heaven, and those gates of heaven open up and we walk through the gates of heaven into the glory of God and we hear the words, well done, thy good and faithful servant. Enter into the kingdom and receive your reward and, and how glorious that is going to be. But if we get there before the rapture, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We get to go into heaven, but we're waiting, we're waiting for the marriage supper of the Lamb. Because the marriage supper of the Lamb happens after the rapture. Christ comes now and gets his bride. He brings with them the souls that are in heaven that have been waiting for the, the banquet. And they come down. The dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive will be translated in a moment, in an instant. And then we're going to return with Christ back to that wedding supper, to that glorious banquet that, that we are going to to partake of. And, and I think about what is that feast going to be like? What's the menu going to be uh, there in heaven at this glorious banquet? And, and here's what I'm wondering, what I was wondering the other day is, is this. I remember on, on Sundays growing up that we would go to church and we would come home. And, and when we would come home, my mom would have put a roast into the oven while we were gone. We would come back and now the smell of the food just permeating the house. And, and I can remember being so hungry. And she would be like, okay, dinner's going to be like in a half hour. And then the mashed potatoes and the gravy and all that stuff would all be being prepared. And we would be in the other room watching TV, being tortured by the smells that were coming out of the kitchen and permeating through the whole living room, just waiting to go in there and to eat. And I was wondering if the kitchens in heaven now are cooking the marriage supper of the Lamb, and if everybody is in heaven going, oh, I cannot wait uh, uh, for this feast uh, for us to, uh, to get to. But, but boy, one of the joys of, of God's people is, is looking forward to that day when there will be no more tears and no more sorrow and we will spend eternity in the glory of his presence and no matter how bad things get down here, we are headed to the feast, uh, you know, and that. Uh, and Jesus is, is, is at this feast now with the Pharisees and, and after he has talked about, you know, God's love and if you're going to throw a feast, have it to be for those who, who cannot be repaid, who cannot repay you and, and that you are going to repay when, when there is the resurrection of the just. That, that's uh, when you are going to be. And there is going to be one of the guests that immediately is just going to jump in his mind right forward to that, to that banquet and to say how blessed it is for anybody who gets to eat bread in the kingdom of God. And Jesus is going to leapfrog off of that into a parable about the marriage supper and about those that think that they are maybe going to be at that feast might find themselves actually 
not at that feast. And there is a warning and an instruction not only to them, but to all of us uh, as well. And, and Jesus is going to give the, the parable of the Great Supper. And then afterwards, Jesus is going to talk about discipleship, about what a relationship with him truly means. So let's jump in here. Luke's Gospel, chapter 14, beginning in verse 15. And it says, Now when one of those who sat at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is he who shall eat in the kingdom of God. And so the, the joy of looking forward to that banquet that God is going to throw. And Jesus responds then to him in verse 16. Then he said to him, A certain man gave a great supper and invited many and sent to his servant at supper time to say to those who were invited, Come, for all things are now ready. It was their custom back then when you were going to throw a great feast that what you would do is you would send out an announcement that was kind of a save the date. And you would say, three weeks from, from Thursday, I am throwing a feast at my house and, and you are invited. And you would then respond, yes, we accept that invitation. We will be there in three weeks. But you wouldn't put the time down. You would just say, in three weeks, that's the day we are going to have the feast. And the other people would know, okay, that's the day that the feast is going to. You would prepare your feast, and then when everything was ready, when the food's ready, everything's set up, you would then send messengers to send them out to everybody that had already been invited, that had already said that they were coming to now say, okay, the time is here, it's time, the food is ready, come on. And then all the guests would come and you would sit down at the banquet. And so the banquet's thrown, the guests have already been invited, it's time to eat, the messengers are set out. If you were to refuse at that point to bow out after you had already accepted the invitation and there was a place set for you and preparation had been made for you to be there, for you to not show up or to give an excuse was a great offense to the master, to whoever it was that was throwing the banquet. And so... Here we have the banquet has been thrown. It's time to eat. The messengers race out to tell everybody to come to dinner. It says in verse 18, but they all with one accord began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a piece of ground. I must go and see it. I ask you to have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm going to test them. I ask you to have me excused. And still another said, I've married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. <laughs> and so we see that there are these, all of these excuses now at the last second of the people that had been invited and, and were going to come, but now suddenly they don't come. And really what we see Jesus saying is, is those that, that are not pursuing entering into the banquet, into the, the kingdom of God. And we see the excuses that people make for, for not putting God first in their life. We see here that the first one, he, he claims that there's a business deal that's going on. He, he, he's got a piece of property that he has to go and, uh, and see it now. And, uh, and so we see the, uh, the career. 
and how it is that so oftentimes uh, people's careers can get in the way of their relationship with God, where they are pursuing their careers and working diligently, burning the candle at both ends, seeking promotion and, and seeking to get themselves to a place. And they know that they're out of balance, but they believe that if they can just get to a certain place in their life, that then, then they will have balance. And, and, and I know that God isn't where he needs to be in my life, but just as soon as I get to this place in my career, once I've established a name for myself, then I'll start to turn my attention towards God. And how many people's career have interfered with their Worshiping God and attending services and studying the word. They, they are consumed with what it is going to take to get them to the next step. Jesus, when he was asked, what is the most important commandment that there is? What, what is our navigational north star in his life? You remember he said, seek God, right? First, the kingdom of God. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That that is the first and the, the greatest commandment. And yet, how many people have allowed their careers to move into first place and to move God out of first place in their life? The second one we see, he, he now talks about his possessions. He, he bought some yoke of oxen, and, and now he has to go out and take them for a test drive and see, and see how high performance these oxen uh, are, how many feet per second they can now plow and, uh, and test them up uh, here. And, and what that speaks of is, is possessions. And how it is that, that people now, God blesses them with the modicum of success and, and then they go out and begin to buy things and, and then they start to go and enjoy those things rather than coming and worshiping the Lord. They, they now have to go take the toys that they've bought and to go away on the weekends and, and suddenly now all of their possessions that, that were meant to be a blessing in their life actually start to to eclipse first place in their life. They need the newer and the better and the bigger and, and now it's no longer going here but now we want to go there and, and suddenly now where God was in first place he is shoved aside out because of the blessings that, that God had given to them. And we see how there is the danger of possessions possessing uh, the very person that, that owns them. And he gives the warning about how many people do not put God first because it has been eclipsed by the things uh, that they own. And then finally, we see the last one. It was the, uh, the relationships, the, the, the very spouse uh, now, and, and how oftentimes uh, relationships uh, can get in the way of God, how, how sometimes there is this crying out to God, oh, God, give me this spouse, bring me this spouse, and, and then God gives them a spouse, and then they forget about God because now they've, they've got this spouse, and, and there's God going, hey, wait a minute, hello, I brought them to you uh, here, but, but there's no place now. 
love for children and family and spouse and people and friends, the, the, the loving neighbor and the relationships uh, here eclipse the relationship with God and, and move into first place. And, and here we see that, uh, that Jesus is warning about all of those things that can, can push aside that loving God first and foremost, the priority uh, of our relationship with God being eclipsed by our careers, by our possessions, by our relationships. There is nothing the matter with careers. There is nothing the matter with possessions. There is nothing matter with a spouse unless they come in between you and God. And then what is good becomes an interference to what is primary and essential, which is your relationship with God. And so he, he warns of these three different excuses that people give for why they're not where they should be or where they want to be with God. And, and so the, the servant comes back and, and gives the report to the master that, that I told him that the food is ready. And, uh, and so that verse 21, so that servant came and reported these things to his master and and then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. And if those who were invited to the feast will not come, there still is going to be a feast. And, and so verse 22, and, and the servant said, Master, it's done as you commanded, and still there is room. And then the master said to the servant, go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. For I say to you that none of those men who were invited shall taste my supper. And so we see in this parable, the master, the, the banquet giver is God. And we see that the invited guests, that stood for the Jews, Throughout history, they looked forward to that messianic banquet when God was going to set the table and they would be invited to sit down and to eat. And, and they were invited, but when Christ came to tell them that now is the time, enter into the kingdom, they, they would not enter in. And so the offer went to the maimed and the poor and, and the lame. And, and those now were the tax collectors and the sinners, the, the orthodox and the righteous. They wouldn't enter in. And so it went to the broken and the cast off and to the discarded. And, and they came. They came and entered in. But still there was more room. And so the Lord sent them out to the highways and to the hedges to compel them to come in, that the dinner would be full, that the feast would be full. And those on the highways and the hedges those were the Gentiles uh, that now were invited to come in who were outside of the promises of God. But now, since those invited would not come, they, and compel them to come in. Let them know that, that they are grafted into the root of Jesse and that they are wanted and welcomed uh, at that uh, feast. And, and let them know 
how much God loves them. Compel them with love to come to this feast and to be a part. And, and so Jesus gives this parable now in the house of the leader of the Pharisees here. And, and we see that the, the feast ends and, and Jesus departs. And, and in verse 25 it says, Now great multitudes went with him, uh, and he turned and said to them, now Jesus is heading towards Jerusalem. It says that great multitudes are now going with him. He is on his way to Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover. It is one of the, the three great feasts. Uh, and, and traffic is heavy on the roads. If you've ever seen, you know, on the news when they're evacuating an area and you'll see how everybody is trying to get out all at the same time and that the traffic is just, you know, at an absolute standstill because everybody, well, during the feasts, everybody is on the move at the same time, all heading to Jerusalem. And so the crowds are just streaming on all of the major routes. And, and Jesus now is on one of these routes. He is now traveling towards Jerusalem. And, and suddenly the scuttle about amongst everybody is, hey, that's Jesus up there and that, that crowd of people. And then everybody starts to all merge in with Jesus. And so there's, there's a great multitude that is around Jesus. But Jesus isn't interested in crowds. Jesus is interested in offering them an invitation to connect with him as their Lord and Savior and to enter into a personal, deep, abiding relationship with them. He's not interested in, in popularity and fanfare. He knows that the size of the crowd means absolutely nothing, that the very same crowd that will hail him with hosannas on his triumphal entry are the, are the same voices that will be calling crucify him. He turns now to speak to this mass of humanity that is behind him, that is there because it is interesting, because they've heard about him, because they want to listen to him, but not because they are accepting his invitation to enter into the kingdom of God. And so he turns now to the people. And he says in verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And shocking word, hate speech. What is Jesus doing here? He's talking about hating people. I thought that God is all about love and we're supposed to love everybody. And here it says that, that, that we're supposed to hate our father and mother and wife and children. What is Jesus saying here? I want you to, to know that he is speaking in what is known as exaggerated contrast. Exaggerated contrast uh, means that when you've got two things, you want to set the priority of which one is in first position and which one is in second position. So exaggerated contrast lets you know exactly what that order is. You remember in the Old Testament where God says, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Did God really hate Esau? Is that what's going on? No. 
That's exaggerated contrast. It means that Jacob was the one that was preferred, that he is in first position, and that Esau is behind him. Now, their birth order was Esau first and Jacob second, but Jacob is the one that has first position. Jacob is the one that I have loved. Esau I have hated. And so you have this exaggerated contrast to set into order which one is to go on top and which one is to be secondary. And so what Jesus is saying is that your love for him has to eclipse every other relationship that there is, that he will not take second place to any other relationship. He will not take second place to parents. He will not take second place to spouse. He will not take second place to children. He will not take second place even in your own life. If a man wants to follow after Jesus, he has to crucify his flesh, pick up his cross, and then follow after him. He is inviting us into a deep, personal, intimate, abiding, eternal relationship with him. And all of these other relationships, they're temporal. And his relationship is eternal. And we must put the priority on the eternal over the temporal. And and this is what Jesus is saying here. And so he says that you cannot be my disciple, verse 27, and whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And so Jesus is inviting us not just to come and spectate, not simply to know about him, not simply to be friendly with him or friends with him. He is inviting us into a lordship-savior relationship and into a discipleship relationship. And so to the mass of people, he cuts through to the very heart and the core of the matter. In order to press this deeply into their understanding, he gives two illustrations for them. He says in verse 28, (coughs) For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. We see that Jesus is talking about someone who does not weigh the cost of their decisions, but rashly begins down a path that that they do not have the commitment to complete. And so there are so many people that begin to follow Jesus because everybody else was doing it and, and because of emotionalism and their feelings and all, and they never way the invitation that Jesus is is giving. He is inviting us into an eternal relationship with him. And he wants us to consider it and to weigh it and to think it through. When someone invites you to marry them, that is a weighty decision. You, You think about that because that is going to have an effect on the rest of your life. And so Jesus is saying, weigh it, consider it, think about it, ponder it. It is a deep concern. It is your rescue of your soul and our eternal relationship. He goes on to give a second illustration. 
In verse 31, or what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. When a king is threatened with an advancing army, that king is in the position of having to assess the strength of that army that is coming against him and the strength of his own army and whether or not his army is adequate in order to be able to, to resist now the oppositional force. And if that oppositional force is overwhelming and that king goes into battle, his army will be destroyed and then his whole country will be destroyed. And if he is not have sufficient then to go out and while the army is still a, a far way off and to ask for conditions of peace. Winston Churchill was exactly in this situation in World War II. The Nazi war machine was moving through Europe and it was now threatening Great Britain and they were on the brink now uh, of attack. Winston Churchill had to weigh whether or not there was the resolve in the nation and whether or not they had the capacity to be able to stand up against the, the Nazis. And, and there were those that were close that was advising him that, that we need to send a delegation immediately right now uh, to be able to offer terms now with the Nazis. And, and Winston Churchill had to decide whether or not he was going to become a puppet uh, underneath the or whether or not he was going to stand and to fight against them. Here in this illustration, sinners are at war with God, and God is advancing, and who can stand against God? And it would be wise to find out what God's peace treaty is with us, and Jesus himself brought that peace treaty to reconcile us to him. Consider it. Think about it. There is peace to be had now, but that is while the army has not advanced yet. And so Jesus is giving them sober realities to, to penetrate into their heart, to, to consider these things. Peace and safety stands before you, but you must receive that. He says in verse 33, So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out. Salt was a precious commodity, a great preservative. You could take meat with it and, and salt the meat, and now the salt would prevent the degradation, the rotting of that meat from the salt. But if the salt loses its preservative factor, then what good is it? Jesus is saying that we are his disciples and, and as disciples we're to grow in the grace and knowledge of him and we're the salt uh, of the earth and we are to be sprinkled amongst our, our communities and our families and our culture to be able to hold back the corruptive nature of our culture and of those that are around in the widespread effect of evil. But if we stop doing that, 
if we begin to look like the world and act like the world and walk with the world, then we have lost that preservative nature of salt. And then I love the way Jesus ends in verse 35. He says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. I love that Jesus never argues. He never raises his voice. He never gets into shouting matches. He, he just simply sets the truth in front of you and says, now if you have ears to hear that truth, then let it penetrate you and respond to, to that truth. He who has ears to hear. I want you to know there are sometimes that people don't have ears to hear. And many times we can have loved ones who are lost, friends that are lost, that we are burdened with, family members that are lost, that we are burdened with, and, and we know the truth, and we want them to have the truth, and, and we want to take them and just shake them, you know, and just get, get the truth into you. Would you, what is, but their ears are closed. Their ears are closed. They will not receive the truth. And, and I think that many times uh, we make a mistake of trying to press that truth and we're so anxious to get that truth into them that, uh, that we start to push to the level where, where now they start to get irritated and, uh, and even offended. You know, would you stop talking about Jesus? Okay, yes, fine. Then you put a little verse at their place, you know, for, you know, just to stick it over there in their car and they're, send them a little email. Heard this devotional, thought you might like it. And you just, oh, you know, and they, they get so mad and it's not helping. Why? They don't have ears to hear. Jesus said, do not cast your pearls before swine. You see, when ears are closed, stop. When you put pearls before swine, they eat it like slop. They don't value pearls. They don't care. They just eat anything. And they just, you know, I mean, it's it. And so you wouldn't take something valuable and keep throwing it before something that's not going to value that. Just stop. Because this is what I have found. That life has a way of bringing all of us into trials and tribulations. We all get our turn in the barrel. <laughs> and when you're in that barrel, when, when life is hard and difficult, it has a way of having you reassess the, uh, the way that you're living your life and, and, and what's important and what is not important. And not only that, but when a life is not built on truth, Jesus said that if you build your house on the sand, that when the winds and the waves come, which they will, that house will fall. Absolutely. You can try and tell a person, don't put that house on the sand because you get down to bedrock and put it there that it's not going to move. And they're like, no, we're good. Was this per ocean front? Look at woohoo. We're right here on the sand. <laughs> And you're like, no, really, seriously, you have to listen to this. This is not structural. No, we, we've already talked to people. They said it's good. <laughs> and you're like, okay, we're going to keep loving you. <laughs> and we're going to start in getting blankets and everything ready because that is going to fall apart. It's going to fall apart. He says, don't argue with them. Just keep loving them. Just keep loving them. Because if their life is not built on truth, it will certainly fall apart. And it is then that their ears will open. Wait till 
their ears are open and then be willing to share with them the love. Jesus just offers it. If you have ears to hear, this is truth. If not, it's all good. You keep traveling the way that you're going and, and I'll be here to help you whenever you do need my help. And so don't give up on your loved ones and don't press in and don't irritate them and aggravate them. Just keep loving them and just keep waiting because there will come a time, there will come an opportunity when their ears are going to be open to the truth. And it says to be ready in season and out to give a reason for the hope that uh, lies uh, within you. As we close our study, I want to draw our attention for just one second to verse 33 where it says, so likewise... Whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. And that was the thing that really just struck me this week was my disciple, my disciple, my disciple. And, and I think that as Christians, right, we're, we're saved and we know Jesus as our Lord and Savior. That's who he is. And he's really good at being our Lord and Savior. But if he's our Lord and Savior, what does that make us to him? What are, what are he to him? We know what he is to us, but, uh, but what are now we to him? And, and for some people, it, it's that Jesus is my ticket to heaven. I've accepted Jesus. I have my get out of hell card uh, now, and I get to go to heaven. And now I'm just going to go and live my life and have Jesus. I have Jesus, and I have my life. But Jesus doesn't want that. You are his disciple. If he is your Lord and Savior, that makes you his disciple. And, and so what is a disciple? A disciple is a learner. It's, a, it's an apprentice. I think of a, I think of a plumber and, and how master plumbers will have a, this apprentice. And the apprentice shows up first day on the job, doesn't know anything about plumbing. And so he begins to show him, okay, this is how we start our day. Uh, we go to the workbench, make sure everything is clean in place. We go to the truck and make sure that we've got all of the supplies on the truck. We fill in everything that we need from the day. We straighten everything out. We go, we get our job orders, and then we go and we show up on our first job. And he begins to, uh, to teach them how we start our day, how we end our day, how we work through the day. Begins to show them every circumstance and every situation, what it is, how you handle it, how to change valves, how to weld all the skills, all the things that there are. And so as, a, as an apprentice, as a, a disciple, you have these good disciples and you have these, uh, these not so good disciples. What does a good disciple look like to a, a, a master plumber? It's someone who shows up early, is ready, is eager. They, they want to learn. They're, they're absorbing the information. They're trying. They're practicing. They're growing. And if they continue... They will one day look like that master plumber who now can walk into the situations and to be able to, to handle them. Well, you are an apprentice now. You are a disciple of Jesus. And now Jesus is going to teach you everything that Jesus Throw that out the window. This is now how we live. When you get up in the morning, first thing, get into the Word. You need some spiritual food. Then you need to do your intercessory prayer. Then what you need to do is get on the armor of God. That's the way that we start our day. Now we're equipped. Now we receive the love of God, and we're going to go, and we're going to head out. We're going to love the unlovable. We're going to be able to resolve conflict. We're going to be able to help, and I'm going to teach you and help you how to handle all of those 
situations in your life. Now, you're going to learn a whole new way. You're not going to live in fear. You're not going to be anxious anymore. You're going to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. You're going to go from victory to victory. This is who we are. So now we are these disciples. And so the question is, what kind of a disciple are you? Are you the eager learner that's now showing up and, and putting into practice and all of those things? Or uh, are you the one that's dragging, reluctant, forgetting, not, not learning, not trying, not participating, not equipping and being dragged along in this? He's our Lord. He's our master. And you're now to learn uh, from him. That's our part is, is being that disciple. And the question that I had is, what kind of a disciple are, are we? Are we trying to now learn, moment by moment, every situation? Or is he just a part of our life, and we're trying to live our life and still have Jesus a part of it? He says, you're my disciple. Now learn from me. He says, all you that are heavy and laden and burned, come to me, learn from me. He says, my yoke is light, my burden is, uh, is easy, and I'll teach you and instruct you. May we be good disciples. May we be bright-eyed, ready to learn, ready to grow, ready to take on the challenges of the day as he would teach us and guide us and help us how he would have us to walk through the day. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you. Help us, Lord. We pray that you would help us this day if, if we are struggling with putting you into first place, if careers or possessions or family or anything else has, has moved into first place in our life. I pray that today would be the day that we would just tear it down and reinstall you or install you in first place in, in our life. And Father, I pray that you would help us to recognize and understand that we're disciples to be learning every single day, to be growing every single day, to be equipped and, and to be going from victory to victory. Help us, oh Lord, to look more and more like you so that, Lord, when they see us, they see you in us. And so, Lord, bless us now. Help us, Lord. Strengthen us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, next week, chapter 15.